Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years, we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Through that time, as you can imagine, we've watched fad diets and fitness crazes come and go. But when the fads have failed and the crazes died out and people just want something that works, they turn to Precision Nutrition for things like expert coaching, guided mentorship, and online support. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will help make the whole nutrition, fitness, and health process work for you. Ideally, you'll discover that eating, moving, and living well can be easy and enjoyable for now and into the future. So let's get started. So today's topic is intermittent fasting, as you guys already know, probably from the program. And so we're gonna talk about some very interesting things. And I'm actually really excited that so many of you did decide to show up to this because it's kind of a niche conversation right now. You know, this whole intermittent fasting thing, maybe some of you hadn't really heard much about it before, but this is a trend that's coming really fast and really hard on our industry. And if you guys know how to respond to it, you'll be in a much better position because your clients are gonna start coming to you asking you these fasting questions. And if you don't know anything about it, you're gonna be like, oh, that's a bunch of BS. And it may be in some circumstances, but in a lot, there's some utility and it's kind of nice to have some answers for this. Because, I don't know, you see like kind of one of the biggest kind of hot topic, trendy kind of things in nutrition, at least with your clients coming to you lately, is probably paleo type stuff. And, uh, and that's gonna be around for a while, but uh, if you know my crystal ball is right, and it's been right before, it's also been wrong before, this is gonna be the next thing after that that's getting a lot of hot attention, okay? Intermittent fasting, the idea that sometimes you eat a little bit and sometimes you don't. And we'll talk about some of the different protocols and stuff. Now, I actually gave uh, this talk, or a talk close to this one, um, about two months ago in the UK. And in sort of researching this talk and, and also the book that I wrote on the subject, um, I discovered that there's this whole line of thought around the idea of using fasting to prevent jet lag. And I thought, well, how cool. I'm about to go to England to do a talk on intermittent fasting. I'm going to do intermittent fasting to try and combat my jet lag. So I delivered my talk in England after 48 hours of eating nothing. And uh, I'll talk about why I don't think that's horrible and why it actually was a good idea in that case right now. So uh, this scientist here uh, actually published a whole series of ideas about preventing jet lag with fasting, and I'll show you what it, what it looks like. This is a little bit more complicated, and there's ones that have come out that are a bit simpler, but the idea behind it is that, so you'd plan your travel, so day uh, five there would be the day that you're traveling. You would sort of stagger your intake during the week, so you would have like, Day one and three would be these feast days where you would eat like high protein breakfast, lunch, and then a high carb feast for dinner. So you would eat sort of unlimited amounts on these two days. And then on the days in between, days two and four, they would be fasting days. And you wouldn't have to eat nothing, but you would just eat super light, okay? And for most people, it's just way easier to eat nothing. And you guys have probably experienced this. In some cases, like you wake up and you're hungry at breakfast time. But if you actually skip breakfast, after an hour or so, it kind of goes away. And then you don't feel like you need to eat till like 
10 p.m. really. I mean, you just feel like you can last forever. So I usually find if you're gonna do a fast day, it's kind of best to keep the calories pretty low. And then on your travel day, you simply fast until you arrive at the time zone of your destination, and then you would eat like a normal breakfast, like a high protein breakfast at that time, right? So for me, the way that my travel had worked out, you know, if I were to apply something like this, I would have fasted for about 36 to 48 hours, something like that. And the idea is that using food to reset your circadian clock can make a big impact for travelers. Now, if you guys don't travel across several time zones often, this is completely irrelevant to you, and I apologize for that. But there are some populations that do this very often. And so in military medicine, a study was published where they looked at uh, these soldiers flying to Korea from the US. And what they found was there was about seven and a half times reduction in jet lag symptoms on the way over, and then amazingly, like about a 16 times reduction in jet lag symptoms on the way back. And that's pretty interesting. I mean, it has applications to what else? What else do you guys think this would be relevant in? What population? Athletes, for sure. Professional athletes traveling across the country, maybe sometimes across two, three time zones, and then they have to play a game the next day or a match. Uh, pretty relevant. And it's relevant for me. Probably a lot of the speakers here I perform better because we travel often across time zones, even if it's just east to west coast. Sometimes that trip from where I live just outside of Toronto to California just kicks my ass. So there's some applicability there. And so there was some follow-up stuff. You know, there's, there's kind of a simpler version called the anti-jet lag fast, and that's just like two days of prep. You don't have to do all this stuff the week before. So this one is you would just kind of eat normal on your day of travel. You would just kind of skip dinner, and you would fast before and during the flight. You'd cross your time zones. You make sure you drink a lot of water. That's one caveat that I have for the whole presentation. People get this crazy idea that when I say, you know, like fast for 16 hours or whatever, they're like, well, I couldn't go that long without drinking water. And I'm like, that's a weird comment. <laughs> We're talking food, not drinks, right? So you can have unlimited water. And when you're traveling, you, you know, I generally, for athletes, for example, recommend about 500 mils an hour when they're on an airplane uh, to help with hydration. So, and then when you arrive, same deal. As soon as after landing, as close to local meal time as possible, preferably if it's breakfast, you eat and then you just get back on a normal schedule. And even that has been making a difference for people who travel across time zones. Now, for my particular UK trip, you know, I'll show you my travel diet. And uh, I had the publications for the other one. This one is yet unpublished, okay? Can't cite any peer-reviewed journals that it's appeared in. This is just some stuff that I do. And this is kind of what I do all the time. So my normal intake, this is my normal diet nowadays. About three days a week I do strength training. And I'll tell, talk about my goals a little bit later. I, I think context is really critical, right? My goals may not be your goals. So three days a week I do strength training. For breakfast I just have green tea and water, okay? I, I never eat breakfast. And you can see why all of a sudden uh, I think this is a big deal. Because if I'm up here saying like, whoa, I never eat breakfast. And you're like, well, I've heard that you always should eat breakfast, and if not, you're an idiot and you're destined to be fat. But that guy up there, he's not fat, and seems to be in good shape, and he's a PhD in nutrition. So what's going on here? Some cognitive dissonance and tension is arising, right? It's good. Let's sit with it for a while, because we'll address it all over the course of this presentation. All right, so then usually for lunch, I'll have a high calorie, high protein, high carb meal, and for dinner I'll do the same. 
I'll do three conditioning days a week. So I may do sprint interval training, I may do circuits, stuff like that. Uh, same, green tea and water for breakfast. And then it's just low calorie, lunch and dinner. And they're protein and fat meals. So the carbs are really low. So it's just loads of protein and vegetables. So those days are 2,000, the other days are 5,000. So you kind of have to know what my training is as well. You know, I blow through a lot of calories through these sessions. But nevertheless, it's just, you see what's happening. There's a cycling effect, calorie and carb cycling, and there's a fasting effect here, okay? And while it sounds all complicated and stuff, guys, it's simple. On my conditioning days, I work out around lunchtime. Afterwards, I eat some meat and vegetables. A few hours later, I get hungry again, and I do that same thing again. On the other days, I'll just add a bunch of potatoes to that. You know, or if there's like good cheesecake around, I'll have some of that. Okay? It's not complicated, it's really simple. You just don't eat breakfast and then work out around lunchtime and then have a proteiny and veggie meal or protein, veggie, and carb meal. Okay? Really, really simple. I don't want this to seem more complicated than it really is. But I'll tell you why I'll do, I do all this in a minute. On the seventh day, it's kind of a day off, but I'll do the same thing. And I, you know, if I'm traveling in there, it'll be a low calorie day and then I'll just sort of land in my destination and get back on my schedule, okay? So I eat like this every day and it just so happens that it works pretty good for jet lag. So I also will sometimes have a snack in there somewhere. I'm not like a strict calorie counter. The fact that I know it's around 2,500 calories doesn't mean that I like have a fit day thing and I plug it in and stuff. No, it's just about what I get. And sometimes I'm hungrier than others and I'll throw a snack in there and that usually comes between lunch and dinner. Make sense? I want you guys to understand, it's really, really simple what I'm talking about here. And so like I say, if I'm traveling, I may extend the fast to 20 hours because what you see here is if I'm going from dinner to lunch the next day, it's somewhere between like a 14 or 18 hour fast. We'll revisit that idea in a second because some of you are probably like, I'd never do this fasting crap. But before we get there, we gotta address this issue. So whatever happened to this eating every three hours thing and breakfast being the most important meal of the day, isn't all this nasty stuff gonna happen to me if I don't eat? Muscle loss, low blood sugar, high cortisol, low performance, irritability, nutrient deficiency, fatigue, road rage, you know what I'm talking about. Hungry, you're trying to get home, about to run over some babies and dogs and stuff if they get in the way because food's on the other end. Okay, isn't all this gonna happen if you don't eat? Well, our industry has sort of embraced this idea of eating frequently and never skipping breakfast and stuff like that, but it's not an essential. People are doing extremely well with infrequent eating if they make good choices and they do it strategically. And I'll talk about maybe who this is good for and who this might not be good for later, but I just want to imprint this idea in your heads that maybe eating every three hours isn't necessary. I'm not saying it's bad. In fact, most of my career I recommended it, okay? A lot of my educational materials were built on it. And so when I started talking about fasting, people were like, I feel so disappointed. You've been lying to me all these years. Look, we run the world's largest body transformation coaching and research project. We've coached 10,000 people in the last four years and we've measured everything. 90% of those people still eat four meals a day, five meals a day. They still eat breakfast. So I'm not saying that's not cool. I'm just saying that when you tell people anything else than that is not cool, you're telling them some incorrect information. 
So that's what I'm getting at here. Being embracing of some of these ideas rather than dismissing them, but just understanding the context and where the correct place is for each of them is what will make you a good professional, okay? Not sort of a dogmatic adherence to one set of ideals that really was just passed down by people like me who've already changed our ideas. You know, because I know there's a lot of people in the room that got a lot of their nutrition education from me and my company, Precision Nutrition. And I found it kind of humorous recently when I started talking about intermittent fasting and the people who learn nutrition from me start telling me this is wrong. I'm like, well, wait, I taught you the every three hours thing. I'm telling you you don't have to do that all the time now. And they're like, I don't believe you. So again, I'm just trying to get you guys, to, maybe just for some of you, just to crack open the thought process a little bit around this idea. So how did all this start for me in the first place? How did I even get interested in this? Well, it all began with what I call the first fast. So, I mean, again, you know, we coach about nowadays 5,000 people a year through, through our online coaching program. And one of the exercises in the program where we simply ask people to not eat for a full day, fast for one whole day. It is an amazing response that we get to that. Amazing. You guys are feeling it right now. Some of you are thinking the same things our clients think, and some of you are thinking what your clients might tell you if you asked them to do it. It's scary. People are not used to the idea. They think it's, they, maybe they're gonna die or something, okay? <laughs> I mean, I really like the idea, and a lot of our program is sort of mind-body awareness stuff. I like the idea of sitting there and feeling things. And you will feel things on a day of not eating if you're not used to it, okay? You will feel all kinds of things. And we'll talk about some of them in a minute. Some things that are perceived and some things that are real. Because when most of you who are used to eating every few hours tell me things like, yeah, but I can't do that. Like if I go longer than three hours, stuff happens bad, okay? <laughs> but if you think anyone in the room who's tried intermittent fasting will tell you that they used to be the same way. Because usually what we do is this thing. No, no, but you must not be like me. I feel this stuff, you must have never felt that. No, no, I did. I was a breakfast person. Like, I was the guy who woke up and I was like, if you don't get out of my way, harm will come to you. I have some eggs waiting for me, okay? But when I started doing this, my entire system shifted, appetite expectancy hormones and things like that changed, and all of a sudden, now I'm a not breakfast person. It's kind of amazing how that works. You can train yourself to be either. Same thing with food. So people's perception of how they're gonna feel leads to a panic response when they don't eat and they start freaking out. But when they realize that their head does not explode when they don't have that meal, they start to get comfortable with hunger and it's a really interesting psychological shift that happens with people. So there's a host of reasons. For me, other cool things came out of it. It was a bit of a reminder for me that there's loads of people in the world that don't get to eat every three hours, not by choice. Okay, there's people who are hungry. And what that feels like and reminding me routinely of that is kind of an important thing that's become part of my schedule. So I do a full day fast periodically. So there's some physiology, there's some psychology, but no one in our program comes out of this experiment feeling like it was worthless. And then we just tell them, you never have to do this again. Just try it once though. Sit with those hunger feelings and see what it means really. So, you know, that was my first 24-hour fast. Then I started doing that a little more routinely. I might do it once a month, okay? So what would my days look like? So the day before fasting, I'd have my breakfast, my lunch, my dinner, and then 10 p.m.-ish, I'd have protein, veggies, and some water, okay? Just bedtime snack, if you want to call it that. 
and then the next day I just wouldn't have any food, but I was still a little scared of what might happen, okay? Like, I work out a lot, I'm a pretty strong guy, you know, I, high performance is important to me, thought maybe I'd lose some muscles and all these things I worked so hard for over the years. And uh, so I would include basically water with, with greens, greens powder in it, okay, because I'm like, I gotta get, get some nutrients this day. Um, I would include some branched chain amino acids and have green tea, and that would be each meal. So I'd have like those at my normal meal times, because you guys know that, right? Like there's a hormone called ghrelin and there's a host of others that are released in response to when you normally eat. So if you normally eat at one o'clock, you usually start to get hungry around 12.30 or 12.45. And that's sort of an anticipation effect for feeding. Your body knows like, hey, we normally eat at one. So I'm gonna start releasing these hormones. Neurotransmitters, things start to happen, you start to feel hungry, okay? So when I was transitioning, it was just like, okay, so instead of eating food, I'll just have something to keep me occupied at that time. Right? And then I would just have protein and veggies and 500 mils of water, same thing I had the night before. So I basically had very, very, very few calories and that was like my fast. And I've come to actually eliminate those altogether and I do these on Sundays. And it's really cool for me because I have two little kids at home, so I just take them to the park all day, you know? And I, they have their snacks and stuff. And I'm like, this is wicked. I have all kinds of free time on my Sundays, you know, once a month. I don't have to cook, I don't have to eat, I don't have to stop. I'll just play with my kids all day. Sweet. So it became a neat little routine for us when daddy would have a fasting day, okay? Around nine o'clock, they need to go to bed soon, okay? Because now I need to, I start to feel hungry. But generally, this is how most people think hunger works. Okay, so you don't eat, and over time you just get hungrier and hungrier until the head explodes, okay? <laughs> this is our interpretation of what's gonna happen. And you feel it, right? You're like, man, I normally eat at five, done work, running a little bit behind, I'm feeling this feeling like, and we call it like hypoglycemia, but very few people are truly hypoglycemic, okay? It's not hypoglycemia. It's an epinephrine response. It's adrenaline, noradrenaline, or you wanna call it epinephrine, norepinephrine. What's actually happening is you're mobilizing energy resources and you're getting a little bit of a fight or flight response. It's not low blood sugar, okay? It's adrenaline, it's being dumped. And if you want to lose fat, it's not a bad thing because it's mobilizing free fatty acids and you're burning them for energy instead of blood sugar or instead of stored carbohydrates or instead of stored protein. It's kind of a good thing, right, to a certain extent. But we're worried, right, because you feel that feeling and you're like, ooh, this is bad. And if it keeps going at this rate, okay, I'll never survive this. But really what happens is this. As a 24-hour fast progresses, you sort of have this spike around breakfast time, and then it's strange, but it goes away. And if anyone's ever been in a position where you're forced to skip a meal, as time goes on, you're like, oh, I kind of forgot about eating, right? That's normal, it just happens. Epinephrine's released, and you're basically using the food that's stored all over your body right now, okay? And there's some really fit, super lean people in here, but all you got some food stored on your body right now waiting to be used. And that's what's happening. You're eating your own food, not external food, right? And then you kind of get a little hungry at lunchtime, but not so much. And then it goes up around dinner time. And then, so it's this neat little oscillating thing. And if you get used to the fact that this feeling right here doesn't increase anymore, but goes away, you can be comfortable fasting for a full day. You just take some deep breaths around that time. It's the keep calm and carry on thing, all right? And it's neat because after the first time, it's way easier. I mean, nowadays I can do 48 hours and it's barely uncomfortable. 
I don't do that frequently, okay? But it's barely uncomfortable. For me, the key lessons were hunger is not an emergency. And that's what we teach in our program. It's really critical to understand, especially for your fat loss clients. Maybe for you guys too personally, but for fat loss clients, teaching that hunger is not an emergency is critical. Being comfortable with hunger is essential for fat loss. Anyone ever try and lose fat? You have to get comfortable with hunger, don't you? You have to be okay with it. And you don't just tell yourself to be okay with it, you train it. It's a progression, right? And so this is part of the progression in our model. Physical isn't psychological hunger. That's another important one. You're like, ooh, wait, after, after like that first time where I started to panic, I didn't really ever get that hungry again, so maybe the panic is what's making me feel this way, and it's not the hunger. So you learn to dissociate the ones. For me, and maybe none of this resonates with you, eating is really a privilege, right? We have the privilege of feeding ourselves and the resources to do it. That's a cool reminder for me, but that it's also a responsibility, okay? We have the responsibility to maybe choose some better things. And you remember that when you fast, when you're not choosing anything. And then one thing that is always striking, and I know that anyone who's tried this before recognizes, is that as a fasting day progresses, you're like, how many freaking food ads are there in the world? <laughs> right? Because you're like, now you're really sensitized. You notice like your smells are enhanced as the fast progresses, right? You just smell things. Right? You're like, I'm downwind of french fries, 400 yards, right? Like you're, you know where stuff is. And uh, also the marketing, you see it everywhere. You're like, I had no idea there were so many food ads until I walked around a little bit hungry. So it's pervasive, right? And when you're aware of it, you're less likely to be controlled by it. Because this isn't just about building a better body, it's about developing a healthier relationship with food. And these are all lessons around that. So now let's talk about the research. I mean, when I started digging into this topic, because what's happened is there's a bunch of small communities on the web that are very interested in intermittent fasting. You guys may have heard from them or seen them. Maybe some of you write for blogs that, that espouse this. But it's still very niche, just like paleo was, for example. And um, I was looking at these and I'm like, interesting, interesting, but they didn't meet like enough check boxes for me in terms of like relying on research and sort of this combination of research and practice and you know, using enough test subjects because people will just be like, oh, well, I tried it and it was awesome. Everyone, you should try it now. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. So for us, it was just like I was intrigued, but I wanted to apply a little bit more rigor to it. So I started contacting the top fasting researchers and uh, asking them their opinions and collecting lists of benefits and looking at the published research. So right now, here are some of the things that we think happens. I'll talk about why we think it happens and not why we know it happens in a minute. So what we see, reduced blood lipids. Uh, so triglycerides and LDL cholesterols. Blood pressure, okay? So we think it's a parasympathetic nervous system shift that happens. Uh, inflammation, so these are all the markers that we use. For those of you who are familiar with research, they'll mean something to you, everyone else meaning less, but these are the markers of, of inflammation in the body. So these things all go down. Oxidative stress, protein, lipid, DNA damage is the, is the byproduct of that. And even risks of cancer. There's some data suggesting that risk of cancer goes down with uh, sort of practicing intermittent fasting in one way or another. Okay, there's all kinds of ways to practice it. Next, other benefits. So here, here are some things that get increased potentially. 
So cell turnover and repair, this is called autophagocytosis, but it's the idea, like you guys know when you work out, you weight train, you break down tissue, but you don't think that's bad, do you? You think it's good, because you want to build up stronger and better tissue, more functionally adapted later, right? So the idea here is that this happens in all the cells of our body, and intermittent fasting may accelerate that process. So we can break down old tissues and replace them with new functionally adapted tissues. And that's organ tissues and it's skin tissues. We know this all happens routinely, right? You slough off old layers and new ones grow. Happens in every cell. Our bones turn over, your entire skeletal system turns over in about a year, year and a half. So a year and a half from now, like you feel like your bones didn't go anywhere, but they've been replaced completely. Fat burning. So fatty acid oxidation later in the fast. And that's what I'm talking about. All these epinephrine, norepinephrine, fight or flight hormones are released and that's just liberating fat from fat cells, okay? Uh, growth hormone, this is a huge impact. The longer your fast goes out, the higher this growth hormone spike is. And I've seen data after 24, 36 hour fasting where it's like a 500% increase in growth hormone release. It's, it's pretty impactful. Now, you're not eating during all that time. So if you're like, oh man, I'm gonna get jacked. Nah, not really. Like, cause you, you got high growth hormone at that point, but not a lot of nutrients flooding in to support tissue accumulation. And metabolic rate, and this happens later in the fast. And this is contrary to what most people believe. What have, what have we been taught? And I, I've taught that at times based on research that I thought was available or I, uh, that I had read, that when you eat frequently throughout the day, what happens? You stimulate your metabolism. And there may be a small effect but it's probably not relevant, all right? And some data suggests that if you fast intermittently, towards the end of the fast, your metabolism starts to go up. And again, epinephrine, norepinephrine, fat mobilization, these types of things. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't eat frequently. I'm just saying that when you say to your clients, we need to eat frequently because it'll stimulate your metabolism, you're not telling them the truth. And I'm not blaming you, I used to think that too. That doesn't mean you'll tell them to eat less frequently, okay? There's still other benefits of eating frequently for some clients, but that one is not research supported. So, I don't know, stop saying it. <laughs> uh, so a couple more benefits, improved appetite control, blood sugar control, cardiovascular function, even some data showing like higher doses of chemotherapy in cancer patients during cancer treatment can, can be given uh, with, with less side effects. Uh, maybe not relevant to any of you right now, but certainly relevant to cancer populations who we actually work with through the University of Pennsylvania. And something called neurogenesis and plasticity. So it's the ability of your brain cells to do what we talked about earlier. Recover, replenish, recycle. Now the, the big question right now, and a lot of intermittent fasting proponents gloss over this very conveniently, is that most of the research on this the subjects end up getting calorie restricted anyway. So is it the fasting or is it just the fact that they're eating less food? That's the big question right now that's unresolved. Because we all know if you have your clients eat less food, all the benefits we just put up there happen. So if you eat five meals a day and eat less food, is that the same as intermittent fasting and eating less food? I'd love to give you that answer, but I don't know yet. Okay, the other problem is that most of the research has been done on these little critters right here. Okay, very few human studies, because it's hard research to do. Imagine you're recruiting subjects, usually where do you recruit them from? College, university, so you got a bunch of university students and you're like, hey, I need you to do this study. 
You're going to eat some protein and vegetables at 10 o'clock every day, no other food. So you're not going to find a lot of subjects for that. I'm actually working with a group right now that is looking at that. And they have a cool metabolic chamber. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but literally people live in this chamber. And it measures all calorie expenditure. And then you can control intake. So we're looking at some of these questions right now. Uh, and it's really cool because there's no energy losses, right? It's not like wearing a, a metabolic heart mouthpiece. You're just living in a controlled environment where you can measure expenditure and intake perfectly. Okay, so it's neat, but we're not there yet, okay? So really what we do have are the popular inter intermittent fasting programs. So there's a bunch on the web, and I'm going to go over the most popular ones that have gotten the most momentum and have the most diehard followers, if you want to call it that, okay? So the first one, and this is the one most of the human research has been done on, is uh, alternate day fasting. So the idea is you just eat some food every other day. On the days in between, you don't eat any food. So how does this work out? Well, it's basically a 36-hour fast and a 12-hour feed. So why 36 and 12? Well, let's say you eat Monday. So you eat from breakfast, lunch, dinner on Monday, and then you go to sleep. So you have 12 hours of overnight, and then a full day Tuesday of not eating, and then you wake up on Wednesday and you eat. Right? So it ends up being 36 hours of not eating and 12 hours of eating. So that's one method. Eat every other day. If you're not working out, I think this is okay. Adherents would be miserable on this, right? I mean, only the most hardcore people would do this. And also, I feel like you'd have to really strategically plan your workouts, and I feel like it's a long time of not eating. So maybe very obese clients who uh, could adhere to this, like have a high confidence level that they can, they can do this, uh, it may make a big impact on them. Because for a lot of uh, obese clients who are you know, investigating surgeries and things like that to sort of help with their obesity problem, they're looking at extreme stuff anyway, right? So we can meet extreme with extreme. Another one that's become popular is called Eat, Stop, Eat, all right? And it's just the name of a book uh, by the author. And the idea was that just once a week or two times a week, you do a full day fast. So for me, like it might be Sundays, because that's the day I like to do it. Maybe Sundays and Wednesdays or something like that. Okay, so it's not every other day. You just pick two days and you just fast for 24 hours. So this would be like my 10 to 10 thing. Uh, so don't eat, you know, from dinner to another dinner. Another one that's become popular, now this isn't strictly an intermittent fasting type approach. It's called the warrior diet, but it's close enough, all right? Some people have taken issue with that on the internet that I've called it that, but it's close enough. So the idea is that you'd basically eat lightly for 20 hours, okay? So almost fast, and then within like a four hour period at night, you'd have big meal. You know, you basically, let's say you structure your day, you get up in the morning, have a coffee, maybe have a piece of fruit or something, then you just go to work and have your day. In the evening, you have your workout, and then after your workout before bed, just have a big meal, eat what you want, whatever. For bigger people, it kind of becomes like a, an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? Because you're like, if you need 3,000 calories a day, you've got to get them in like a, a big, huge meal or a big meal and a snack. All right, so loads of people like that. Okay, other people can't stand it. Like, they don't like to eat to be that full. But again, just another potential approach. And then another one that's gotten a lot of traction in the workout fitness strength training community is, is something called Lean Gains. And that's just, again, self-titled by the author of the program, where it's a 16-hour fast, 8-hour feed, and you just do it every day. 
There's no special fasting days or anything. You just basically fast till lunch every day if you want to apply it that way. So you just skip breakfast. It's very close to what I'm doing right now or what I showed you. So you just have like a lunch and a dinner and maybe a snack in between and you just don't have breakfast every day. That's it. You, and, and the way I apply it is I just end the fast with a workout. So that's the other thing. And then there's one more that's kind of interesting, which is just like a random meal skipping type of thing. So every once in a while, you would just skip a breakfast and a dinner. This is hard for a lot of fitness people who like schedules and stuff like that. But uh, the community who kind of endorses this kind of believes that historically, if you believe in evolution and that kind of thing, that we did this, right? We went for periods of not eating because of either food scarcity or, the, you know, I don't know, people think they know how we lived in Paleolithic times, for example. Oh, well, they were hunting all day. They brought the food home, so they ate at night. So this makes a lot of sense. That's just a bunch of made up stuff, you know what I mean? Like we really don't know how they did things, but that's their belief system. So random meal skipping is sort of an application of that. Like that's probably how we evolved. Uh, I just want to address one question, okay? Because this is happening in someone's mind out there. This is cool, I'm glad I know about it, but I will never try any of this stupid fasting crap. I just challenge you guys to think for a second because I would argue that all of you try this fasting crap every day. When? When you go to bed at night. Most of you fast for 12 hours already. So the plan we talked about, the 16 and 8 one, is just an extra couple of hours of not eating. So this isn't as extreme as some of you think. I've, you know, we wrote this book on this and we enabled Facebook comments, which I don't know if that was a good thing or not, but people are like, you are irresponsible and this is dangerous. Like, really? It's dangerous not to eat any food for four hours more than you normally would? Nowadays, that's what's dangerous? <laughs> Jesus, I'm out of touch, I guess. So, I mean, here's what a person who eats every few hours would do, right? So, they sleep at night, get their 12 hours of fast, they have a breakfast, they have a lunch, they have a snack, and they have a dinner. If you do that 16-8, this is what you do. You just eat a little bit later and your calorie spike is bigger, right? Because, I mean, ultimately you still have to get a certain amount of calories in each day. So if you control that, which you may or may not, like usually when people do fasting, they eat a little bit less, which isn't necessarily a bad thing for most people. But nevertheless, if you keep those calories controlled, your spike just goes up higher at those meals. And if you do that 24 thing, you just have a couple big meals potentially to get your calories or just one huge one. So that's the only difference, the size of the meal and when you eat it and how frequently you eat it, okay? When we think of nutrition, I like to think of it in a couple of different sort of best practice areas. The first is how much you eat, calories. The next is what you eat, food selection. And then the next one is when you eat, food timing. All right, and these are the areas most of us talk about. One other huge component of our coaching is something we call how you eat. And most people go through our coaching program go, I've never even heard this before, but it was the biggest impact. And when I say how you eat, I mean how long does it take you to eat a meal? Do you eat in front of the television? Are you eating with distractions? Those types of things. Do you pay attention to fullness and hunger cues? These are the first things we teach. And I don't see many people teaching it. One of our first habits in our program is slow down your eating. We have people actually slow down their eating for a very strong physiological reason. What is it? it? Usually takes 15 to 20 minutes 
to sense into your satiety signals. I don't know about you guys, I can eat a lot of calories in 15 minutes. And then I don't know that I'm full until later and I'm like, boy, I feel like shit now. <laughs> if you slow down, you never get to that. So that's one step. See how that's a beautiful calorie control mechanism without ever counting calories? It's awesome. Then once you practice that, you can start practicing something else, which is listening to those fullness signals and stopping at certain points in your fullness cycle. So a lot of fat loss clients, we work on eating until 80% full. And we teach what that means and what that feels like, but these are two important habits you rarely ever hear. So anyway, I mean, with this intermittent fasting thing, remember, it's not a new diet. All it's doing is shifting one of those parameters, or a couple, how much you eat and when you eat. What you eat can stay the same. How you eat should stay the same. You should still eat awesome foods. You should still pay attention to fullness and hunger and signals. It's just shifting when and, and then how much, potentially. So I was doing all this research and I was reading all these communities and I had done my 24-hour fast and I was like, this is really interesting to me. Um, and I heard a great quote and Dan John who's speaking was involved in this and so was um, Alan Cosgrove who's also speaking here this weekend. And uh, Dan had tried some diet at some point to lose body fat and uh, Alan had emailed him or called him afterwards and was like, hey, you know what's awesome? Now that you've tried that, you can talk about it. And uh, Dan was like, huh, that kind of struck me as really interesting and true. Now that you've tried it, you can talk about it. The corollary to that is what? If you haven't tried it, try shutting up about it. <laughs> I believe in that philosophy. So I said, before I'm going to write anything about it or answer it, because people started asking me questions all the time. What do you think of intermittent fasting? People are biased already, right? Doesn't it suck? Isn't it awesome? I don't know. I read all the stuff, but let me try it. So I decided to do six months of fasting, and it just came at a convenient time for me because, first of all, I'm a lifelong, serial, chronic, self-experimenter and dieter. I've tried everything you've heard of and three times that, okay? I, do, I try it all because I'm fascinated with it. I have a 700 square foot gym on my property, which also is a laboratory, and I have all kinds of laboratory equipment and stuff. So I'm running tests and trials all the time. So I bring subjects in, friends and family and stuff, subjects, and then myself, and we test stuff all the time. So I wanted to do this intermittent fasting thing, and at the time I had decided to revive my athletic career. I used to be a, a track sprinter. You know, I decided I wanted to do that again. So uh, I was going to do master's level competitive track and field. Now at the time I was weighing in about 195 pounds. That was probably about 8% body fat or something like that. And that's too much for, for that, those goals. So I wanted to try something new because I'm always doing that. I wanted to lose about 20 pounds of body weight, get into the 170-ish range for, for track, right? So I didn't have so much stuff to lug down the track. Uh, I wanted to lose mostly body fat, obviously. I didn't want to lose any lean mass, strength, or power. Obviously supporting my training along. I wanted to feel good while dieting, which ha historically didn't really happen for me. Like when I've tried to lose fat in the past, I mean, I come from a bodybuilding background. I competed nationally many moons ago. And um, every time I dieted, it would be really, really short, really, really intense, and suck really, really bad. And it would take me about four days to put all the weight back on. It was the 
the classic cut and bulk cycle that we, it's basically a legacy our field has inherited, isn't it? Right? We've inherited it from the bodybuilders who are really the foundation of this field in the first place. So we've inherited that legacy. And I wanted to see if there was another way to do this without having that kind of effect where it sucks so bad and you're like, oh, the last day is coming so soon. And then on the last day, you eat like five boxes of cereal and that happens for about two weeks until you're back to your normal weight and then you're just back to where you were. You're like, okay, cool, I was lean for that one day. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to stay healthy through the process, so I measured stuff, blood work, all kinds of stuff. So generally over the six months, here's what I did. I started with the one full day fast. I did one full day fast a week, okay? That was it. I controlled my calories. I ate four or five meals a day normally, Monday through Saturday, and I fasted every Sunday. I did that for two months and it worked really well. Okay, I was losing weight at a really progressive rate. My training was good, everything cool. And then I hit a bit of a plateau, so I decided to add in another thing. I did two full day fasts. It's kind of like the eat, stop, eat thing we talked about. That went um, excruciatingly badly. And in about uh, the first two weeks, I think I lost 10 pounds or something like that. I felt awful, so I'm like, oh, that's too much. So then I backed it off, and then I was doing the daily 16-8 fasts. Then I tried 16-8 with a full day fast, and then I tried 16-8 with two 24 fasts. Okay, and it's, it's all complicated. You don't have to remember any of that. But the reason why I switched at each point was either curiosity or a plateau. Like I had stopped losing body fat or weight, or it just, the last phase was really freaking bad, so I had to do something to right the ship. Okay, and again, I, I, measured, I measured everything. And so my body weight from this two month period went from like 190 to 178. Then here I went really fast drop. Uh, I titrated in about 171, although I had been like as little as like 168 at that one point. Then when I did this, I actually gained four pounds of lean mass, which is an interesting thing. So I was like, oh, this one's pretty cool. I'm eating the same amount of food, but I gained four pounds of lean mass. Wicked, not trying to do that right now, got to switch it up. So then I, I you know, my body weight went, went back down and really stabilized for the last couple months at about 171, 173. It was awesome for track and uh, it, it felt really good. And so the ones that I really like the best and work the best were one full day fast and then the 16-8 daily fast. Those are the ones that work best for me using the conditions that I had available and my goals. And then just here's some photos. So here's my before photos. And then here's my after photos. You know, when I measured things, there was maybe one and a half pounds of lean mass loss. And everyone's like, oh, I'm unwilling to sacrifice that. But as because everyone thinks it's muscle. Lean mass is not muscle, okay? Muscle is part of lean mass, but it's only a percentage of lean mass. The rest is organs and stuff like that, which I probably didn't lose any, I hope. <laughs> but most of it's water, right? Lean mass is water. By and large, 75% of it or whatever is water. And you're gonna lose that when you're training harder and eating in this way and cycling carbs and stuff like that. So I think it's fair to say I lost almost exclusively fat and just a, a touch of, of lean mass. And it's just, I mean, it, it got kind of ridiculous towards the end. I was like, I don't need to be this lean all the time. And I actually started getting like sick and stuff like that, which you typically see in, in high level lead athletes who are super lean and training super hard. But anyway, it was a cool experiment. And sort of to cap off the story, I ended up having a very successful winter track season last year and I placed third in Canada in my age group, which I was pretty proud of. And so, mission accomplished.
So here's the thing, and I think this is really important because people say, well, that's awesome and all, but not everyone wants to lose fat. What about people who want to gain muscle? There's plenty of you in the room who've already dismissed everything I've had to say. So we did an experiment with, uh, you guys are probably familiar with Nate Green, who's a what, pretty decently known writer in the industry, and he works with Precision Nutrition now. So what we did with Nate was we kind of did this mix like weight gain MMA study. Nate has a black belt in Taekwondo, but he doesn't fight like MMA or anything. But we work a lot of, with a lot of MMA athletes, and you've seen what you have to do physiologically to them to cam in camps to get bigger, then to lose weight, and then to put it back on for a fight. They cycle their weight pretty amazingly. One of our clients is George St. Pierre, some of you may be familiar with. And this is what we do with George. So we wanted to put Nate through it, but we wanted to measure more stuff than you can an athlete who's about to go into a fight. Okay, because I can't do physiological measures on George right before a, a, a fight. But I can do it on Nate. So what we, the goal was to gain 20 pounds in four weeks of as much lean mass as possible, lose 20 pounds in five days to make weight for his fight, if he had a fight, and then gain it all back in one day. Okay? And it sounds absurd, but we do it all the time in MMA. In fact, 20 pounds is modest. I was talking with a friend last night who has a guy who needs to lose 30 in the next three weeks or something. He used intermittent fasting, actually. So what we did was high calorie and high carb, three meals with peri-workout nutrition on strength days. Then on conditioning days, we just did three moderate-sized meals. And then on Sundays, he did a full day of fasting. Here's what happened. So in four weeks, he went from 170 pounds to 190 pounds. There's a pretty obvious difference there. His lifts went crazy, which was amazing. One of the coolest parts of this study, which doesn't have a lot to do with intermittent fasting, is that we tested 225 bench test, vertical jump, uh, anaerobic threshold, Vmax and Tmax. We measured power, strength, aerobic, anaerobic capacity, everything. So his 225 bench test was eight reps in the beginning of this experiment. By the end of the four weeks, when he went from this to this, it was 18 reps. After losing 20 pounds in five days, it was three reps. In five days, it went 18 to three. And after gaining the 20 pounds back, it went to 16. Imagine that. You go in to bench press a weight on Friday, and you can only do it three times. The next day, you come in, and you can do it 16 times. That's the power of body water manipulation, my friends. But anyway, the point is, we used intermittent fasting, and this guy still gained 20 pounds with a properly designed program. Because again, calories are controlled properly. How much to eat is planned. What to eat, he ate super well. We just adjusted the timing, okay? And I actually think the intermittent fasting that we used helped him stay pretty lean while gaining 20 pounds, because I don't know about you, but he doesn't look any fatter to me. And I think that helped, that reset every Sunday of no food, no calories, potentially boosting insulin tolerance or glucose tolerance, maybe made a difference. So let me just do the summary here. So here's my point, okay? I am not a big champion of fasting. Again, 90% of the people I work with don't do it. But it is an option. And I just want you guys to know it's an option. Some people it will really resonate with and don't tell them they're stupid for wanting to try it. You guys, some of you, it may resonate with, and you might want to try it. And I know there's a lot of you who do it. So too is frequent eating. That is still an option. You guys have used it for years and gotten great results with clients. Don't throw it out just because you sat here today. So who might it be for? People with a history of monitoring calories and food, 
many of you potentially, experienced exercisers, people who are single or have no children. This gets important, this is the applied stuff. But you do have a partner who's extremely supportive only, flexible job and lifestyle, potentially not client facing, low lifestyle stressors, because this is another stressor to add, okay? So your allostatic load goes up, who want an athletic look but not to be huge. If you want to be huge, maybe not, okay? So you can see there's some lifestyle stuff around this because it is a stressor and it is challenging in the beginning. And if you don't have a supportive network around you and you kind of get cranky as the fast progresses, it's not gonna work if you gotta deal with clients or little kids. You don't wanna be backhanding you know, little Johnny because he got in the way of dad when it was time to eat. Who it's maybe not for. People who are new to diet and exercise, don't go there. Just teach them best practices, frequent eating, hunger management, good food choices. They need to worry about that stuff way before food timing. That comes later. People who are married and have children, people who have a performance-oriented job, client-facing job, compete in elite sports and athletics, or have excessive lifestyle stressors, it's probably not for. And when I post this on the web, I get all this hate mail from people who are like, no, that's bull crap, it's for everybody. And guess who that comes from? 24-year-old guys. <laughs> so, we'll send you follow-up, okay? You'll get linked to this page, and this is, it's, you can download a PDF ebook type of thing, but we did this cool thing with it. You can read the whole thing online like this. It's a pretty wicked format, and I think you guys will really like it if you want to dig more into it. If you want to find out more from us, you can come to our website as well at precisionnutrition.com. You'll know you're there by this little apple with the nice midsection there. And uh, that's the end. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. For more information about how to eat, move, and live better yourself, and for some awesome free nutrition and health resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.